you can look at a well-designed graphic and get the takeaway message pretty clearly. And that I consider just as much a story as a 500-word piece about what the data is saying. Welcome to It's Alternalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital news and the people who produce it. Today, I'm joined in studio with Sean McMahon, a data reporter for CQ Roll Call here in Washington, D.C. Sean reports, designs, and does data visualizations. That's how he covers the news. Welcome, Sean. Thank you very much. Okay. So to sort of start off with, what's your journalist's journey? How did you get an interested in data journalism? Journalist journey probably started uh, when I was in middle school and, and realized that I enjoyed doing graphic design, right? So not strictly journalism, but taking an interest in, in design. And then as I you know moved through, through schooling, I started doing more actual journalism, uh, reporting and writing. Came to D.C. about a year and a half ago to work with the Scripps Howard Foundation. They run a program where they bring in six undergraduates every semester to learn multimedia reporting in Washington. So that's politics, it's policy, it's doing national stories for regional media. And so I was there for a year helping these interns and teaching them about multimedia journalism. And uh, great experience doing doing lots of different kinds of journalism, video, photography, uh, writing for the web, and then also started to pick up on on the data journalism side. I didn't have a data journalism degree per se, very few people actually do, but I had a mishmash of a statistics minor and a a major in news editorial journalism and doing the college newspaper route and all that kind of stuff. So kind of being able to marry those two things in a way that maybe not many statistics minors were doing or many journalism graduates without a, you know, a mathematical background were able to do coming out of school, found a, a pretty unique place to live in and then found out it's actually all not, not all that unique. There's lots of data journalists and especially the major news orgs in D.C. This is a, a pretty common position now. So uh, statistics, that was something you were really kind of into? Well, it's funny. I, I didn't actually like it very much. It was actually one of the least favorite classes in high school. But, but you minored in it in college. But my professor, after I took an intro class, you know, not to brag, but said, you're really good at this. You should get a minor, right? And I was like, oh, I guess I could and, and found it wasn't uh, all that challenging for me. So it was easy to pick up a minor. And it's not math. That's the thing, right? Journalists are bad at math. That's a, a true statement. Statistics is answering questions just like journalists do. It's taking data and performing uh, analyses on it to see, is this going to find a result that's worthwhile, is statistically valid, right? And when you're doing journalism, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're going out and collecting information and saying, is this a story? Is there something to go off of here? What's important about this? Uh, So the parallels there actually lined up pretty well. So uh, because of your sort of bent towards statistics, uh, do you sort of see news stories that way? I mean, not every news story has statistics in them or in it, but, you know, when you find a news story that has statistics, I, I like to take a, a close look at them and see how is this being expressed? Is it done in a way that's valid? And with the rise of data journalism among larger news organizations, I think people are getting a good understanding of what these statistics means. But you still sometimes see problems with how data is presented. You know, there's something I harp on all the time, the statistical tie you know, if there's a margin of error in a national poll and two candidates are between the margin or within the margin of error, everyone on the network news, uh, cable news calls the statistical tie. Well, a statistical tie actually has something to do with if the difference between the proportions of voters who are polling for these two candidates is statistically valid, which is a whole other formula. 
then you could call it a statistical tie. And what they're doing is just kind of taking the easy way out, right? They don't want to have to explain it. You don't have to explain it, and you don't want to have to to do this complicated statistical analysis. Statistical tie, everyone knows what it means, even though it's not technically correct. And and like I said, I harp on that in the newsroom all the time. So you take a different look at some of these numbers and stories when you when you have that background in statistics. So a data journalist, then the role is to take well data and to translate it in a way that people can use it or that even other people in the newsroom can use it. Yeah, so it's it's taking data and doing what you do with with interviews and doing what you do with documents in, in traditional journalism, telling a story with it. So whether that is its own post on, on the web or in the newspaper about a database that's interesting or a finding that's interesting from the database or a graphic that goes in a reporter's story that can tell its own story, right? I mean, you can, you can look at well-designed graphic and get the takeaway message pretty clearly. And that I consider just as much a story as a 500-word piece about what the data is saying. Yeah, and it certainly has a degree of impact um, that uh, a a lengthier story might have, uh, especially on the web, which is in many ways very visually oriented. That if you can you can present something in a way that is is easy to pick up without having to like read a you know a thousand word story to go with it, I, you know I think certainly yeah it's just as powerful. Right. I mean that's something that we talk about too is how do you make this stand alone? Because as news gets disseminated in different ways and the news industry changes, we're not just looking at how is this going to play in the paper in two columns with the story. Can this live by itself on social media? We think a lot about can our graphics go on Twitter. How will they work on Facebook? Facebook and Twitter are different sizes. So something that's readable on Facebook might not be readable on Twitter. And on each of those, can you get the message across without having that story next to it to accompany it? If you can check yes to all those things and it looks good and it's valid data, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then you know you have a good graphic. Do you see yourself looking at these things or thinking visually when you get information? I do. Yeah, because there's different kinds of visualizations, charts that work well with different kinds of data, right? So when you're looking at the data initially, if you train yourself in that way, you're already thinking, this is a bar chart. This is a time series graph with a line. This is, you know, a a chart with areas to represent how big something is or, or a map or whatever it is. And so... Yeah, maybe that's another way that you look at information differently as a data journalist is you're, you're thinking about it visually if you do that kind of thing uh, from the get-go. Yeah, and, and try to figure out what's the best way to say, to tell this story. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned uh, you know Facebook and Twitter. Are you thinking about – you're putting together some sort of uh, visualization. Are you thinking from the get-go about how it's going to play out on the different platforms, on, on the website and on, on mobile and Facebook and Twitter? Not as much that on the initial side. The the different platforms you have to think about when you're going into the process is mobile versus desktop, right? Because that's the that's the biggest difference. I mean, Facebook and Twitter, you can kind of finesse things afterwards if you need to. Put a watermark on it, for example. You're not going to have a watermark in the paper, but if it goes on Twitter, you want everyone to know this is a CQ roll call graphic. But when you're designing in the in the beginning, you have to think about, is this font size going to work on the phone and on desktop? And if you're designing a graphic for the newspaper, you also have to make sure you have something that is going to be readable on mobile when it's nice and small. Because newspaper font, you don't want to have huge in the actual paper and then huge on the desktop and then shrink it down. You want to do regular size in the paper, bigger on the desktop, 
and then shrink it down. Do you feel at all, because mobile drives a lot of decision-making on, on how we present things on the web, do you, do you at all feel limited um, by mobile? I guess in the sense of time, yeah, because when you have to do these different versions, you're taking another 30 minutes, and that's 30 minutes you could just find another story. Uh, I've already made this thing. Why do I need to make it a yeah, different Yeah, right. Why do I need to change this? But that being said, it's also a way to, to reach more people, to make the user experience better. And, and that's something we're thinking about, too, is as a graphics team, we're doing interactives, we're doing uh, kind of walkthrough type journalism, how are people going to experience this on different platforms. Um, so you kind of get that, I don't know, computer engineer side in there a little bit where you're talking about UX and UI and quality assurance testing for these different projects. It's it's a little bit different than what you're doing as a as a beat reporter. Okay. So let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, CQ uh, roll call data journalism team. CQ, that's a congressional, congressional quarterly. I think it's something people used to used to be identify with, but now that they're, they're, they're CQ roll call. So describe the, the data team. What are, what are the different roles? What are the different skill sets that are kind of there? Yeah, so the data team at CQ roll call is, is still pretty new. I was the first, I guess, official hire into a data role there, and that was back in August, so it's been six or so months. Now we have five, one, two, three, four, five journalists on the team and an editor. So so we've grown quite a bit in just a short amount of time. And the skill set is, is something that's really interesting on our team um, because it, it's not like a beat reporting team where you have to have the same initial skills and then you specialize in something, right? People come in from all different backgrounds with the initial skill set, and then you apply that toward the news. At least that's how we've been doing it. Um, so I came in with a writing and a design skill set, and, and so did the other uh, data reporter who I started with. But then just a couple of weeks ago, we hired someone who came from a computer engineering background, and he has worked his whole life as a computer engineer, got a master's in journalism, and now he's finding a way to put the two together. We have an intern who was a science reporter and has spent a lot of time working with interactive visualizations, and now she's figuring out how to apply that interactive visualization to what we do, which is congressional reporting. Um, so they really, they really are different skill sets coming in from the beginning there. So what is it that uh, CQ Roll Call wants to do with this data team? I think the long-term goal is to take full advantage of the huge amount of data that CQ has collected for decades, right? So CQ is 70 years old. Roll Call is 60 years old now. They both celebrate their decade anniversaries in the same year, which is kind of cool. But CQ has been collecting a huge amount of data through all that time. We have a, a library and a whole other room with books that have charts and tables that maybe are not digitized yet. I don't actually know. <laughs> a lot but, of scanning in your future. Yeah, so <laughs> if, the, if that's scanned, and hopefully it's by someone who's not me, we can take advantage of that, and we can present really cool historical visualizations and reporting of what's happened. I found out today that we have the address of the home address after every speaker left his post in Congress, um, dating all the way back to the 18th century. Wow. So I think something we're working on now. <laughs> where did everybody go? Yeah, where did everyone go? Uh, I was going to say, I'm not worried about getting scooped on this because the data is living in a library in the back of our office. But where did everybody go? Does everyone live within three blocks of each other in northwest Washington after they leave? Uh, how many leave the district entirely? Is Paul Ryan the first one to not live in the district because, right, he's, uh, he's sleeping in his office and then flying back home every weekend. So that's the kind of thing that because we've been very meticulously keeping these records for so long, we're able to hopefully 
uh, move toward taking full advantage of. Yeah, and that's an excellent example of here's this set of data that nobody's ever actually looked at, but now that you have sort of the tools and the and uh, the team available to look at it and try to find those stories in that, mm-hmm. and that, that's a, that's a great way to sort of spin things out and. Uh, Tell different types of stories. And I don't think we're the only newsroom that has that kind of data. People are collecting things all the time in newsrooms in the form of interviews, in the forms of documents. Sometimes it just takes someone to say, we need to systematically compile this. And you do that for long enough, you have your own data set, you can go out and publish that and find your own insights from that. Uh, that become a whole separate story from what you were originally working on. So what types of projects have you worked on since you've been at CQ uh, since August? Mm -hmm. So... One of the first ones I worked on was something uh, called the Wealth of Congress Index. And that had been going on for a few years. I was uh, hired about halfway into the process this year. We have a team of researchers who go through all the financial disclosure forms for member of Congress and basically sum up the value of their assets and then subtract the value of their, their debts and find out how much each member of Congress is worth. And that's a whole undertaking by itself. Like I said, I came in halfway through. So fortunately, I was not part of that last year. I'm hoping to avoid it this year. Although now that I said that, I'll probably put on it. It's going to be on your, your yeah. desk when you get in there. Yeah, and, and we're able to do really cool analysis on that, right? So obviously who are the most wealthy and the least wealthy members of Congress, um, but then also who has their, you know, who has their money invested in certain companies? Do those companies have pending matters before Congress, right? We, we did something on a member who had a lot invested in Keystone and I, I, not sure what his response was when we asked him about that. Not suggesting there's anything malicious about it, but it's interesting to know that this is something that's very active in Washington on the Hill and uh, something that, that they have another stake in. So let's talk a little bit about the mission of, uh, of CQ. It's, uh, you're, you're covering Capitol Hill. Are you doing it from a political uh, point of view as well, or is it strictly just the matters before Congress? So that's where you get the divide between CQ and Roll Call. Okay. They're two different publications, but they both focus on Congress, so they work well together. CQ is the policy side. That's where we get into the really wonky discussions of exactly how much this program can carry over in spending from the previous year, and are they going to get allocated more or less? And if so, is that going to be designated in different ways, right? And then you have Roll Call, which is the how do people get to power in the first place? We're covering elections there. We're covering things people do on the Hill that are going to affect their elections or affect how the public sees them. Um, that's that's kind of more what you think of as the typical Washington publication, right? Uh, and I say that in the best possible way. <laughs> um, the CQ philosophy is what do people do once they get there? Whereas the roll call is how do they get there in the first place? Yeah, well, when you're talking about campaign finance and things like that, then definitely I could see where that would be more in the roll call area, the, you know, the, what, what things might be influencing a campaign or maybe even what influences uh, somebody when they get here. And campaign finance is interesting because it also has, you know, the policy questions about it is how do members have to disclose what, what they're doing? How do members or campaigns have to do their disclosures? So um, they do intersect quite a bit. And so we do get that content sharing between CQ and roll call, you know, owned by the same company, but again, two different publications. So what have you done so far on the campaigns? On the campaigns, um, we do take a look at campaign finance. I did some some uh, digging last month into how much lobbyists had uh, donated to campaigns, and uh, Hillary Clinton was far and away the top of the, the presidential field in terms of how much money she was receiving from lobbyists. Did some lo- looking at Paul Ryan after 
before and after his promotion, I guess, to speaker, if you want to put it that way. Reluctant promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Begrudging promotion, maybe. But a promotion nonetheless. Anyway, his his lobbying, uh, you know, in influx of cash went way up after uh, he got this new power. And then his replacement on the Ways and Means Committee got a, not quite as large a boost, but also a boost in, in lobbying income. So uh, that's some some data journalism that we were able to do on the CQ side uh, for that that policy. How were you able to present that? Uh, with that, we we worked with the lobbying reporter to do a story, do two stories actually, and then we had just just some pretty basic charts that went in those. Um, that was something where, and this is actually my favorite part of it, we were able to find this new and interesting and newsworthy piece of information from our data journalism, data digging, whatever you want to call it, that then became its own story, right? And I, I think that's kind of the goal is, yeah, we make charts, they look good, they tell stories, uh, we make these interactive things that hopefully give people a, a better understanding of the news, but just like reporters, we want the scoops. We want to be able to say we presented some new information. We uncovered something that's important to our readers and important to the country. Uh, and we did it through our data techniques. So do, do you find that um, most of your stories are coming from reporters or or is it the other way around? You're, you're going through the data and you're bringing stuff to reporters. Most of the time it's coming from reporters. But uh, I, th- I think one of our goals is to get more coming from the data desk. At least that's one of my goals. That's something I'm excited about. So when a reporter comes to us, we, we have a process for how we work with them to get through um, their information. Um, sometimes they'll have a database they found in the course of their reporting and not quite know, you know, what's the most important thing of it, in it. Or they have found something and it looks great, but they're not sure how to visualize it. Or sometimes they are able to do the whole thing and they just come to us and want to make it look good, <laughs> which is even better. But we often will work with the reporters throughout the whole process. So as they're going through their reporting, we're going through our reporting on their database, and then we meet at the end of it, and our piece and their piece goes to the editor and then goes online. Before we started this interview, um, over the last couple of days, we, we were sort of sharing some notes. And one of the things that you had in one of your notes is you were talking about how to make a beat reporter become more of a data reporter. Can you just sort of talk about how that how that can happen? Yeah, I mean, there's so much data out there now because we live in the era of big data, right? And everything's being monitored and collected and FOIA laws are, I mean, not great, but they're, they're out there. <laughs> they're there. You, can, you can get them. If you've got the patience. If you've got the patience and, and you're willing to stay at the same beat for like three years, you can get your FOIA request back, right? But the beats all have that data embedded in them, right? So if you're able to find out what is the data that's being collected on my beat, what are the forms that people have to fill out when they register to do something on my beat. So like, I don't know if you're in the agriculture beat, right? And you know that farmers have to fill out a particular form in order to get subsidies. You can look at all those forms. You can FOIA them, get the results back in a database, and then analyze it yourself. Um, Now, that analysis is a whole other skill set. So after you've thought of what kind of data is on my beat, you have to figure out, okay, what technical skills do I need to be able to look at this in, in an intelligent way? Um, because sometimes they come in and they are messy, right? PDFs are not fun to deal with, and yet so much data is stored in PDFs. But they're simple tools to be able to deal with those kinds of things. Uh, I'll give a shout-out to Tabula, which is one of my favorites, which can extract data from tables and PDFs. And then just, honestly, I spend so much time on Excel, which is not hard to learn. Most people already know how to do basic things on Excel. It's just a few extra functions that are already built into the program that you have to learn in order 
to do some things like sorting it and filtering the data and finding out percentages by in- inputting formulas. Again, not difficult. They're just new skills for a lot of reporters who, who are not familiar with doing data journalism, but it's not, it's not a, a barrier that's 10,000 feet high. It's maybe a six-foot-high hurdle you have to jump over. Okay. Well, let's say somebody who wants to be, well, your role, who wants to become a, a data journalist, what, what sort of advice would you have for someone like that? So someone who wants to get really into data journalism, uh, I would tell them to start at the same place, learn Excel, learn something like Tabula that's easy software to use, um, but then start thinking about what, what place you want to live in in data journalism. I mean, there's some people who can do it all, and I am bewildered and, you know, so impressed by them. But more realistically, you know, there's the coding end of it. There's the design end of it. There's the back-end database reporting part of it. Good idea to know a little bit of it all, but specializing in one thing I, th- I think is what's going to get you hired uh, and what's going to get you on a path to be able to do some cool stuff with this. So if you want to go into coding, you know, there's the lessons online on Code Academy on Linda. That's how I learned to do, I'm not, I'm not a master coder, but enough to get by, right? Uh, if you want to do the back-end database management, that's not something that I'm really good at, but I'm sure there's those lessons out there as well. The design, find someone who can mentor you in that because design is more of, a, of an art form, really. Um, sure, there's the hard and fast principles, but you want someone experienced who's watching you and critiquing you to be able to give you some pointers on it. And then there's the reporting, which is just comes from a solid background in reporting. So if you're already a beat reporter, I'd say you're at least halfway there because so much of what we do is still with the concept of objectiveness, you know, fairness, ethical journalism. Those are all things that go into journalism, whether it's in the form of a data visualization or whether it's in a 10,000-word story. That seems pretty pretty uh, comprehensive, but not too... I mean, I think reading between the lines, I guess a person doesn't need to go into coding. I mean, a lot of people seem to be resistant to going into, you know, when you start talking about coding, like, oh, I, you know, that's going to be too hard for me. But, but there are ways to learn enough to get by or at least to, to begin to understand the best, best practice or the best way to, to get into this information. What do you, what's in your toolbox? In my toolbox, what, what do I use the most often? I mean, Excel is a big one because that's where we really start with data, right? It comes in and we want something to be able to edit it with. You know, Excel is the easiest thing to learn, and and you already probably know a little bit of it. Uh, There's a program called Tableau, which is used really heavily in the the business sector for analyzing data, but we use it to create backbones for our visualizations. It's drag and drop, so it's not coding, but you're able to do some really cool things in there. The program can make instantaneous visualizations, but the problem is that they all look the same when they're all in, in uh, Tableau style. So from there, we take the the artwork and we put it into Adobe Illustrator, which is part of the Creative Suite and, or the Creative Cloud, they're calling it now. But put it into Illustrator, and that's where we put our kind of CQ style on it. We make sure all of our colors match up with the colors that are on the graphic. We put our watermark in the corner. Um, we change the, the fonts to make sure they match the fonts that we're using, whether it's in the magazine or online. And then after that, pretty much have a, a finished product. So that's on the that's on the data visualization side. Um, on the reporting, again, a lot of it is being able to find things online. So Google really becomes your best friend. Knowing how to download the files to make sure that you're able to read them. PDFs, again, are bad. I'm going to keep repeating that in hopes that maybe someone who publishes data will think about that before they publish data as a PDF. And then 
again, it goes back to Excel and being able to uh, manipulate the data in a way that, that tells you some interesting stories. Now, I, I know you mentioned uh, in there somewhere uh, big da- uh, big data. There's sort of this push in the, from the Obama administration that they were going to try to make more government data available. Has this been something that you guys have been able to take advantage of? Is this in your wheelhouse at all? I don't have a good answer to that um, because it's it's tough to know what what is new online and what's what's been published forever. I mean, it hasn't always been as easy to access, I'm sure, because website technology is getting better, right? But I don't know if, if this database that's been collected since the 80s has been public or if it's something that's new. Uh, I'd say probably the change we've seen is that it's easy to access these things online. It's easy to post them. They don't have to be in a million different formats for different computers to read them. And so that's where we've reaped the rewards. On the local level, there's lots of different places that are using not a suite of tools, but different tools to publish their data so that the average citizen can access it and and get meaningful information from it. So the one I'm thinking of is called Socrata. Socrata lets local governments publish their data um, in interactive tables, but then also the user can make charts from them on on their own and explore it without having to, you know, know any code or or wait for a journalist to do whatever they want to do to it. So I'd say on the local level, that's definitely happening. Federal government is tough to make generalizations about, though, because it is so huge. It is so huge, and it's sort of spotty. Not not everybody's up to the same level of compliance. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say there are agencies that are doing a good job with it, and there are agencies that you know are responsive when you ask them for for different data sets. But even then, sometimes it's a certain program within the agency, so it's it's hard to make those generalizations. So. What advice would you give to a newsroom that wants to sort of go deeper into data analytics? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to, to uh, do is think about where you're already at and what kind of audience you have and what kind of data that, that audience would be interested in. So if you are a local newsroom, you're doing a lot of crime reporting, right? And that's something that, that is doing well online or in your nightly broadcast or whatever. Think about what kind of data is already being collected on that beat by the people who are the officials. And that could be the police reports. That could be the traffic stops. This was in South Florida, I think, uh, a paper did something where they analyzed the the cop cars that were speeding down the roads via, I don't know, cameras on tolls or sensors on tolls, but they were able to do a data piece based on, on the geolocation of these, these sensors to say that cops were, were speeding unnecessarily. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, someone had died because of this. Someone was hit by a car, a speeding cop car. Um, but that all came with the idea that you're doing uh, some data analysis on a beat that's, that's already really important, which is a cop's beat, and every local newspaper has one. So think about where your data is, and then think about what skills you need to parse that data, right? So you might not need a computer program right front. You might just need someone who's already in your newsroom who is really good with Excel. Uh, or maybe someone in your newsroom already knows some free programs that are online like Data Wrapper or like Tableau that will let you make visualizations out of the data. Uh, you don't have to do a big investigation to start. You can just take the stories you're already doing and when there's numbers in them, think about the best way to visualize them. There's guides online that can give you some pointers on what types of charts are good for different sorts of information and ways to present them in, in a style that's easy to digest. And, and those are not complicated things to do. It's just a matter of actually saying, this is where we want to start, and 
these are the resources we need to to invest in it. Yeah, and I've heard of newsrooms who they'll have somebody who who scrapes the um, the police report and just creates a blotter on their website, and then every time the police update, you know, on their website that that information is is goes into whatever frame they've built. Yeah, and it's not website. just it's not just uh, police reports, obviously that that you can do that with. I mean, uh, there's so many things that are being updated online continuously um, that you can now fairly easily scrape to be put into your own database. Or you can set up, which I've done on a couple of things, trackers uh, via different websites that will let you know when that website has changed, right? So if you're paying, what I'm looking at is uh, 538's endorsement tracker. So I have a ping in my email every time that their endorsement tracker gets updated because we're doing our own endorsement tracker, right? And I'd be flattered if they were also pinging my endorsement tracker. But if, you know, if we're doing that, and we also have our own sources, we can know like, okay, we missed that one or we already got that one, but it's another way to verify the system. And there's a million different sites I'm sure that people would be interested in having those pings come in their inbox for. So it, um, what's, uh, what websites are, uh, do you like doing good stuff with uh, data analytics? I mean, the big newspapers uh, in the U.S. have really caught on to this. The New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal, they have big teams to do this, which is great. And uh, I think the investment that they're putting into this is paying off hugely for them. The Washington Post had a great piece of data journalism last year on the number of people who were killed by police in the country. And that is way higher than any, any total that the government has officially published because there's just no good records on this. It's different agencies. They don't all have to report to the FBI. But based on media reports, based on publicly available information, uh, the Washington Post was able to get this done because they put the investment into it. And, um, you know, other other news organizations have also done significant work and, and found those newsworthy moments based on data reporting and based on the investment that they chose to make. So I, I'm sure there are probably some things that you're working on that you, you can't talk about, but um, what's what can we expect as we go forward from uh, CQ Roll Call? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I can somewhat newly talk about is uh, our brand new roll call website and newspaper redesign. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you yeah. said that you were going to update that. So popping, tell us. Popping out, uh, I believe, Friday online or possibly Saturday, so okay. end so of this that, week. Yeah, it'll, it'll be, uh, by the time this gets out, that'll, it'll, it'll be online. Cool. So now it's online. I, uh, I'm excited to see how that goes. I, <laughs> it'll be done, though, apparently, by the time everyone's listening to this. Yeah, so that, um, in addition to, to lots of cool things, is going to have an emphasis on making sure that graphics look good, that graphics are part of the you know continuous feel of what the new roll call is. Um, so that's the ability to do interactives on the homepage. It's making sure that if we need the full you know 1,280 pixels on your just on your monitor to do a graphic, that we have that room to do the display with. You know, and that was a, those are long discussions that we've been having with our developers to make sure that um, we can put this emphasis on on the data visualization that we've been doing already. And it's a testament to CQ Roll Call that they wanted to highlight this in their new design. They're, they're forward thinking about what are we going to be able to showcase um, with our huge set of data that is going to set us apart and is going to um, advance the storytelling that we already do. So that's one thing that, that we're working on that we're excited about. What else are we doing? Right do anything now? with the election that you can talk about? Yeah, I mean, lots in lots of planning with the election. Um it's still months away. Yeah. Well, you know, Except all it's, the been months, it's been months away since the 2014 election. Exactly. It was already a talking point then. You can expect that we will have full elections coverage. That's all I really can say about that right now. But 
you know, that we're not the only ones who are doing this. I'd point to other places in Washington, like the Post and like, oh, where else is doing this? The AP who have great elections um, portals, yeah. right? And that's a lot of that is data focused. I mean, people might might not immediately recognize it as data journalism because it's just kind of what you expect in elections. But those are being fed by databases and the maps are being created by numbers that live underneath them in a spreadsheet format. So be thankful you don't have to look at the spreadsheet and instead you look at a nice map that actually can communicate that information. Yeah, yeah. I know that uh, upstairs at WTOP, they, um, they, they're, they've they they taken advantage of the AP platform for their election, co- their national election coverage, even their local coverage. Uh, and they've been really pleased. Yeah, uh, I mean, one thing that. we've already done is uh, we, uh, CQ collects the primary candidates for every race in the country. So everyone has the presidential ones, but we also have the House candidates for the party nominations in every district and the Senate candidates in, in every state that, that has a Senate election. So if you go to our, our primary calendar, which you can go search for on Google, uh, the roll call primary calendar, um, you can drill down really deep into that data to see exactly who's who's going to be uh, having a primary threat in their district or uh, you know, if someone is particularly interested in a certain race across country, they can see who's running in that. And then we also um, are able to work in a project that I've been doing that I mentioned earlier, which is tracking all the endorsements from members of Congress. We try to put this congressional slant on our reporting, and data reporting is somewhere we do this as well. So, yes, we cover the presidential election, but how can we work Congress into that? Because we know that our readership is hugely um, centered around Capitol Hill. And so we want to to deliver something that's unique to us and unique to our readers. Yeah, I know at Federal News Radio, our focus is is on the federal bureaucracy, on federal managers. Do you Is your audience a good chunk of your audience outside the, the D.C. area? I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, I know that when we're when we're thinking about timing, you know, we think about people who are working that nine to five job or maybe a little bit longer um, because a lot of our audience is on Capitol Hill. I, I'd say that roll call uh, has the potential to be a national brand because people at this moment are, you know, supremely interested in politics. I was looking at data just a few minutes ago from the AP and the conversation around Donald Trump is, you know, it's like spiking right now. And even something that seems, feels kind of insider when Chris Christie endorsed Donald Trump, that spiked searches on Google and, and conversation on Facebook, right? So it's not just us nerds in D.C. who are paying attention to this right now. There's room to grow outside of, outside of our bubble. Yeah, this has uh, big implications. What goes on on Capitol Hill, despite the, the frustration and the gridlock, does affect a lot of people. It does, and, and that's why I think a lot of us get into it in the first place, is how is this going to affect our country? Capitol Hill is where laws really begin. Uh, I mean, the, the White House has their say in it, but it gets introduced by a member of Congress and it gets voted on by members of Congress and, and then it goes to the White House. We're focused on how is this legislation being formed? Um, how are they dealing with what the White House is going to do? And, and how does that affect us in Washington and people, people around the country? Next time on It's All Journalism. Today, we're at a moment where technology is very much participatory, you know, breaking up the kind of one-to-many style of broadcasting and putting us instead in touch with many people across networks that interact many-to-many. And that is changing journalism in ways that I think are really fundamental in terms of how we actually engage our communities and what their expectations are for their involvement in the journalism process, too. So that participatory technology is also ushering in more participatory journalism, I think. In our next episode, I talked to Josh Stearns and Molly Day Aguirre of the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Josh and Molly just released a report about their 18 months at the local news lab. 
looking for sustainability and community engagement solutions for local news outlets. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Agrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. 